right, 11 o'clock. Last week, if you were here, we talked about seasons of life. And this is part of a larger conversation that we're having. uh, But I I don't want to get too far into it because we need to lay some fresh groundwork today. So we're going to do some conceptual stuff, some big idea stuff. And I promise it'll pay off if you hang with me. Uh, But you being the 11 o'clock me and you've had an extra two hours to drink coffee, I need to know, are you with me? Excellent. All right, let's get into some ideas. Let's begin with a hypothetical. If you want to, close your eyes because we're going to imagine an experience together. So close your eyes if you'd like to trust me in that much. If not, just keep an eye on me. Make sure I don't do anything shady. And uh, I just want you to imagine that we, the church, have kidnapped you. And we've blindfolded you. And we've thrown you in a car. And we've driven you for a while. And we put you on a helicopter. We fly you for a while, then to an airplane, then to another helicopter. We take you out of all of that travel and we land you someplace. We put your feet on the ground. We set you walking in a certain direction as we take off your blindfold. And you've got a couple of questions that you've got to answer right away, right? You're wondering, uh, perhaps, where am I? <laughs> and where am I going? Pretty simple, but pretty important, right? So imagine that you're, you're walking and you're wondering where are you and where are you going and you look around and you start looking for landmarks that talk to you about where you are and where you're going, right? So imagine you have no idea where you are, but you look up to your left and in the distance you see this big white tower that seems to be in the middle of a renovation with new blue stripes going up to the top and a faint old Holiday Inn sign that used to be there. And if you haven't been in South Bend lately, you might not know that's the Chase Tower here in South Bend. <laughs> and then you look over to your left and you see a little sidewalk and then this sort of concrete rail and on the other side of it, you see flowing water, which you begin to recognize as the St. Joe River. And you realize that you're in Howard Park, which raises other questions like why the church paid for a helicopter to get you to Howard Park. <laughs> and, uh, and with that realization, you figure out I could walk just up that hill a little bit, get to Jefferson and then get to the right and I'll be at the General Deli or I'll have a sandwich and I'll wonder why my church kidnapped me. Make sense? Okay, you can open your eyes. This is a super basic uh, image for us, but I want us to work with it for a little bit because when you don't know where you are or where you're going, as you move through space, the physical space in the world, you start to look for landmarks, right? This is a really natural way of orienting ourselves as we move through the physical world, through space. Uh, we could, you know, land you someplace else. We could put you uh, on a green sort of grassy area, and you might look in the distance and see a big shiny golden dome, and then you might see this tall building with Jesus on it, apparently signaling a touchdown, and you may not know that you're in Notre Dame, but you would at least discern these people really care about football based on the monstrosity of a stadium that's right behind you now, right? <laughs> you can orient yourself based on the landmarks that you see. Uh, let's, let's play around with that for a little bit, but let's not just talk about physical space. So uh, in the early 1900s, what was happening right here in this exact factory facility is the Studebaker family was moving from wagons to cars, and lots of different things were changing in the world as we moved to a more industrial life. And uh, some of those things that started changing in the world were the result of a strange, strange man in Switzerland who was working in a patent office, and at the very same time that wagons were becoming factories right here, Albert Einstein was doing some equations on the back of a napkin or something like that, and he came up with some radically new ways of understanding the world that have proven to actually bear out as true. And I want to show you one of the things that Einstein says about the world that we live in. This is from Albert Einstein. Space, physical space that we move through, by itself, and time by itself, are doomed to fade away into mere shadows, and only a kind of union of the two will preserve an independent reality. 
And Einstein, with his math equations, figures out something that changes the way we think about the whole world. He figures out that space and time are not two separate things, but that they're somehow woven together in one fabric. And by the way, this bears out not just in the math equations. Like that, the way that you move through space and the way that you move through time are connected. And if you move through space differently, it affects how you move through time. Watch this. They actually take a couple of atomic clocks, highly specialized, highly accurate, down to the microsecond clocks that are not messing around. And they put them on airplanes going different speeds in different directions. And they observe the phenomenon that Einstein calculated called time dilation. And the clocks have experienced different amounts of time even though all of us on the ground observing would say they were counting the same amount of time. Let that blow your mind for a little bit. You can just kind of go down a rabbit trail if you want to Google that and get bored with the sermon. But this is actually the world that we live in, that space and time are connected. They're part of the same fabric. And the reason I want to get at that is because the ways that we talk about moving through space, orienting ourselves to landmarks, it seems that it's appropriate to also talk about moving through time with some of the same language that uh, geography and clocks and calendars are all working with some of the same basic principles and that you and I as human beings in this universe where time and space are connected, it's possible that we move through time in some of the same ways that we move through space, which would mean that we orient ourselves in time by looking for landmarks just like we orient ourselves in space. I mean, like, let's just kind of play around with this for a bit. Don't you orient yourself in time by looking for landmarks? You have uh, things that recur on your calendar that tell you where you are in the week. If you move one of those, it'll mess with you, right? When we took our Wednesday night gathering for South Bend City Church and moved to Sunday mornings and Tuesday nights, there was a whole month where I didn't know where I was in time, <laughs> right? If you've ever had a shift in the calendar, maybe right now as you're going from summer to a school year with your family, maybe the, the landmarks on your schedule throughout the week are about to change. We have all these landmarks that tell us where we are in the day. Have you had lunch yet? Is your belly telling you you're hungry? Do you have some rituals in the morning or the evening that tell you where you are in the day? In the week, the way that your weekends and your weeks are, the way that your work week flows, are there landmarks that you sort of orient toward? And you may not even realize that you're looking for them, but they're how you know where you are in time. Maybe it's not just uh, the way that you move through your day or your week, but the way that you move through your year. Are there things in the calendar? D does, your, does your work cycle live by an academic calendar? Are you a teacher, an educator, an employee at the university? Right now, are you feeling the shift in the year? Uh, are, are you driven by fiscal quarters? Anybody have an office that sort of ebbs and flows with each fiscal quarter? You've got goals to hit and quotas to nail, right? There's sort of ways that we know where we are in time, where we are in the year. Uh, seasons that come and go. Um, does J. Crew send you an email right now telling you it's time to buy fall sweaters and that's how you know fall is coming? <laughs> what about entertainment, like sports and entertainment? Is the first Notre Dame football game going to just sort of speak to you on a deep visceral level that fall is here and life is good again? I, like, I don't know how you relate to these things, but we use landmarks to tell us where we are in time. Not just days, not just weeks, not just months, not just years, like the entire span of our life, like birthdays and anniversaries. Like, does anybody have a birthday last week or this week? Anybody have a birthday? Right there, we got a birthday? Excellent. You get $10 to spend downtown at your favorite restaurant. This is downtown dollars. Happy birthday. Yeah, right? Anybody else have a birthday? Right here? Excellent. Yeah, we got another. When's, when's your birthday? It was Friday. Happy birthday, belated. 50. Nobody heard that. Nobody heard that. Anybody else have a birthday last week or this week? I know now people are tempted to lie. Back there? 
Oh, right here. Brian, is it your birthday? Coming up or just happened? August 16th. August 16th, happy birthday. Was it you too or were you getting my attention for him? You had one? I'm coming right back. <laughs> Pretty soon smart people are going to be like, they don't know when my birthday is and I want to go get a burger, so I'm going to raise my hand. When, uh, when's your birthday? 14th? Happy birthday. Excellent. Any more that I'm missing? Angela. What? Angela. Oh, no, we, sorry, we got here first service. Yeah, thank you. Angela does have a birthday coming up Saturday. But she's a good, honest saint, and she knew that I would call her out if she tried to fake it to get another one. So birthdays orient you. Hey, have you ever had a birthday and forgotten how old you are when somebody asks you and you're off by a year, but you're not trying to fake it? You just legitimately forgot? These are landmarks in time, right? They talk to us about where we are as we move through life, as we move through time. Um, some of the landmarks are subtle, like a birthday that you forget about when it's yours. Um, they're little things in the calendar that sort of operate in the background of our lives. Some of the landmarks in time are not subtle. They impose themselves upon us. Like, has anybody ever forgotten your anniversary? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. But that, that will impose itself on you as a landmark in time, right? A little while ago, I had a moment in time that I was really looking forward to with some friends. So uh, I'm a foodie. I'm a food lover. I'm prone to making wildly irresponsible decisions for the sake of culinary experiences. Anybody else with me on that? Come on. A few of us, right? So uh, there's this restaurant in Chicago, which is like a temple to the culinary arts. It's world-renowned. It's won three stars. I think Chicago's first three-star Michelin restaurant, which if you don't know what the Michelin stars are, we're not on the same page. That's fine. I'll educate you later. But it's a really big deal. This restaurant has been rated one of the top ten restaurants in the world by the food critics. It's uh, the feature of an episode of Chef's Table on Netflix. The restaurant is called Alinea. And my friends and I, for like years, have been hearing about it and watching documentaries about it and reading about it and scouring the menu and saving up our money. And at Lydia, you have to buy tickets two months in advance for your dinner time. You, you pay for the whole meal in advance, you give them your credit card number, and there's this moment in time coming up. It is a landmark on the calendar for us, right? So the big day comes, and we're very, very excited. To, to pregame, we actually rewatched the Netflix episode, like a bunch of food nerds. And, uh, and the day comes, and so we're on our way to Chicago, and we are so very excited. And you guys, from the minute we walk in, this thing does not disappoint. I mean, they, they know every one of us by name when we walk in, which is kind of creepy and kind of amazing, you know, and they take us to our seats, and there's this one long table in one dining room, and there's only like 15 people. That's the whole thing. And so it's our group of four and a few other people, and there's these little ice carvings in front of every seat with these little glasses with caviar and lobster poached in butter and like truffle, like just this incredible, and this is just the warm-up, you know? And there's a little pearl spoon that you use to eat everything with. And then when you're done with the welcoming course and they've gotten to know you a little bit, they invite you back into the kitchen, which is like going behind the veil in the temple. You know what I mean? This is like where the magic is. So you're there and the rock stars of the culinary world are back there doing their thing and they talk to you and they serve you another course in the kitchen. And then you go back to the dining room and while you were in the kitchen for like seven minutes, they completely rebuilt the dining room without you knowing. I'm not making that up. They literally tore apart tables, changed the walls, so you walk back into a completely different room. We're there, and then uh, a couple courses later, they come out and they ask everyone to hold out their right hand, or sorry, they hold, everyone hold out your left hand because they're going to put something in your hand to eat, and then your right hand for a utensil. But they say, Mr. Miller, for you, would you please hold out your right hand because we know that you're left-handed. Right? Amazing. I'm like, Yes. It's not often a left-hander's world, but it was for that little moment in Alinea, you know? 
Guys, for 14 courses, the show is on, and we are just lit up by this thing. They bring out this soup on kefir lime leaves and salt, and it's coconut milk, and it's cucumber balls, and it's a fish that's the most delicious fish I've ever had in my life, and we're like weeping at our table. They bring us, they bring us several courses of dessert, one of which is an edible balloon, you guys. I'm not making this up. It's an edible balloon that's floating in the air, and they bring it to you, and you kiss it, and it collapses into your mouth. It's like Willy Wonka with wine, you know what I mean? Like just really fantastic. So this whole thing's going on and we are in the moment, except one of the guys in our group who's in sales, who finds himself at Alinea on the last day of a fiscal quarter, and uh, he didn't know it when he booked the table with us, but there's a multi-million dollar deal on the table and they have until midnight to close the deal. And so three of us are there. We are in this moment in time. We've been looking forward to it. We are just drinking it in. And this poor guy, he's literally on his phone during four hours of Alinea, which costs a lot of money. And the whole time, he's just, and, he, and he's up and down. Because like one minute, it looks like they're going to get the deal signed by midnight. And then 10 minutes later, while the next course is out, he gets another email on his phone. And his head is in his hands. And he can't even like fit the plate in front of him because he's so distraught over the deal going down. Up and down. He has to leave the restaurant for a little bit. Now, what's going on here? But the fiscal quarter, which is a landmark in time, it's part of our structure of time in an economic world, right? It is imposing himself, itself on him. And I'm not knocking it. Like, yeah, like we do live economic lives. We have jobs and responsibilities. I just felt bad for the guy. And I feel like if you went back and asked him, where were you? Like, where were you that night? I, I think the true answer is not a linear. The true answer is I was in the last day of a fiscal quarter, right? That you can be located in time the way that you can be located in space. And the landmarks that are built around us in the world, they speak to us, don't they? They speak to us. Well, in the scripture, um, you see lots and lots of landmarks of time. You see lots of places uh, in the Bible where God is uh, establishing landmarks in time. Uh, for example, with the Israelites in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. Um, we see, for example, the Israelites, their founding story is one of oppression and injustice and slavery, where they, they are on the receiving end of the injustice. They are the victims of, of the Egyptian uh, empire economy, just beating them down and building itself on their backs. And then God breaks in and does this powerful, liberating thing where he rescues them from their slavery, where he stands up for justice, where he's there with the oppressed, and he leads them out of that. It was, a, it was like a heck of a moment in their history, right? But watch what happens. He, he, um, in, in the moment of their liberation, he instructs them in a meal that they will eat the night of their liberation, which we call the Passover meal. It's this detailed, ritualized meal that has all kinds of meaning within it. But he says, you're gonna keep coming back to this meal every year. You're gonna have a landmark in time that you're gonna orient yourself to as you move through your life. This is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 25. So when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, Observe this ceremony. Keep coming back to it. It's a perennial landmark. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. What does the ceremony mean to you? Like, what is this landmark saying to you about where you are and where you're going? What is this landmark in time that you'll come back to every year, this thing that you will put on the calendar? How does it speak to you about where you are and where you're going? 
You might actually say these questions are even deeper. Maybe the landmarks in time are speaking to us about who we are and what our lives mean. That as we orient ourselves in time and we look around and try to find the landmarks that tell us where we are in time, it's like we don't even notice it, but these landmarks are speaking to us with meaning about who we are and what our lives mean and what we are becoming as we move through the days on the calendar. For the Israelites, this seems particularly important because there are warnings in Scripture as if to say that, like, where you are and where you're going is a story of liberation. It's a story of grace breaking into the world. It's a story of, of uh, peace breaking into the world, of less and less brokenness in the world and more and more wholeness in the world. And so you were the blessed recipient of all of that, but now you're going to become the people who carry that into the world. And so you have to have landmarks in time that keep speaking to you about that because other landmarks will show up on their own. And they will tell us other things about who we are and what our lives mean. Like you think about the, the landmarks in our week, in our month, in our years, in our lives, and think about how many of those landmarks in time are economic in nature, whether it's tax day or the fiscal quarter or wh whatever it is, however the money works in your life, in your job, in your family, so many of the landmarks that set themselves up, that orient us, they're economic in nature, right? There's a bunch of other landmarks that set themselves up in our life and they're consumeristic in nature. It's time to buy these things, you know? It's Black Friday, it's time to buy stuff, right? It's Christmas season, it's time to buy stuff. The J. Crew email, it's time to buy fall sweaters. Like, so much of what's actually showing up in our lives and speaking to us about where we are and where we're going is uh, consumeristic in nature. These are, these are the landmarks that get built whether we want them or not, right? There's also entertainment landmarks. How many people have had a season in your life, no shame, because I'm one of them, how many people have had a season in your life where you knew what day of the week it was by whether Survivor was on TV? <laughs> right? This is before Netflix and before you can watch what you want, when you want, but like, that's really normal for us. Entertainment becomes an orienting factor in our calendar, right? We know where we are and when we are because of the entertainment that we consume. Sports is part of that. Super Bowl Sunday or the start of college football season or postseason baseball, I'm not, I'm not saying these are bad things, but there are all kinds of landmarks that set themselves up that orient us in, in where we are in the world. And if we're not careful, we might find ourselves completely oriented by economics, by entertainment, by consumerism, and have few landmarks that tell us the truth about who we are as we move through time. Uh, so God gives the Israelites these better landmarks. It's like God is saying to them, like, you were enslaved for so long. You need to institute landmarks on your calendar, moments in time that you orient yourself to that tell you the truth about who you are, that you are so loved that God chose to liberate you because he cares about you, and that your life matters so much that you are now being called to be an instrument of justice in the world. Now, guys, um, I suspect that the moments that call us to be who we are made to be the moments where we find ourselves um, a little weak, a little unsure, a little unsteady about stepping into that role in the world, I suspect those moments are made more difficult when we have oriented ourselves with bad landmarks. And like, like what I mean by that, for example, is when something as uh, reprehensible as racism hits the streets of Charlottesville, and some of us, like me, aren't exactly sure what I'm supposed to do about it, I think some of that inaction, some of that hesitancy for me, 
It's because I have many landmarks that tell me I'm here to consume things, I'm here to produce economic things, I'm here to be entertained, and I have fewer landmarks that remind me I am a recipient of God's generosity in the world, and I've been called to bring God's justice to the world. I have fewer landmarks in my world, in my calendar, that tell me I'm here to be brave, to be bold, to surrender and sacrifice, and to work for the world that God imagines. If I had more landmarks that orient me, I might more quickly know where to move and how to walk when the world is so broken the way we've seen it in the past week. So here's the good news. You can be creative with creating new landmarks. Like, your calendar is yours to a certain extent, right? Now, there will always be economic landmarks in the calendar. And I'm not even saying that's bad. We have economic lives. It's part of the good that can happen in the world. There will be entertainment. I'm all for entertainment. I'll mark the calendar the next time my favorite show starts back up. I'm not saying that's bad. But what if we decided we would have even greater landmarks, that we would create them, that we would have some fun with this, that we would imagine ways of speaking to ourselves on the calendar to tell us where we are and where we're going because we're in a story of God's grace and peace and we're going to a world where God's generosity and justice are more and more fully on display. So I have these friends who are in the room right now, but I won't call them out, uh, who a while ago um, had a moment on an airplane that looked like it would be the end of them. And these friends were uh, flying back here into South Bend and uh, they're told that uh, this is gonna be a rough landing. They're told to brace themselves. There's gonna be foam on the runway and they have every reason to believe this is gonna be the end of them and the end of that airplane. And so the way they've told me the story, they at least uh, appreciated the fact that husband and wife got to be together for that moment and they held hands and prayed and prepared for that to be the end. But it wasn't, obviously, since they're here now, if you were paying attention. (laughs) And so these friends, uh, they've decided every year since on that date, they throw a survivor party, not the TV show, but a party uh, just to be thankful for the fact that they're still here. And their one rule is you're not allowed to come if you're not thankful they're still here, which is probably a pretty good rule, right? And, and so I go to that party, and there's great food and drink, and we celebrate, and it just strikes me, this is monument building, this is landmark building in your calendar to remind you of the good things you've experienced. This is what we're supposed to do with the way that we move through time. You could do this on a weekly basis. You're going to hear more next week from Ryan about Sabbath keeping, about a day each week that becomes a landmark in, in, in the landscape of your time. that that speaks to you and says you are more than what you can produce. You are more than what you create. You you are more than your effort. You you matter by virtue of being here. And for a day, uh, Sabbath is about receiving that, about resting, about ceasing, so that you can uh, let your roots go down into something deeper than what you produce. There are all kinds of ways that you can do this creatively. And sometimes I think that like in the spiritual practices, we miss out on how much opportunity there is to just invent stuff. Like, just get crazy and figure out the landmarks that you're going to put on your calendar. Now, uh, on top of the ones that we might want to create, the good news is we're not starting from scratch. Because just like the Israelites, as God's people in the Hebrew Scriptures, are given these landmarks, these ways of returning to the story of God's liberation in their life, the followers of Jesus for, for almost all the last 2,000 years have had their own version of of proactively creating landmarks on the calendar that remind them what story are we really a part of? Who are we really? What are we becoming? And uh, you might have heard this talked about. Sometimes it's called the Christian year, the liturgical year, the liturgical calendar. Let's put these up and talk about them for a bit. Now, I put the words Advent, Epiphany, Ash Wednesday, Lent on the, on the screen, and I imagine a bunch of different reactions happening in the room. I imagine some people are just like, oh yeah, I think I've heard of those from my crazy religious aunt. Cool, right? 
Others um, maybe have some fond experience, some uh, really positive encounter with these ideas on the calendar from some other earlier time in your, in your life. Others might uh, have come from a tradition that used these on the calendar, but other parts of that tradition were really, really difficult for you. It felt lifeless or dead or somebody within that tradition or a whole community within that tradition spent its energy telling you that you don't belong or some other way that they sort of betrayed that. I don't want to name all of that, but if you just hang with me for a bit, I want to propose that this Christian calendar, this way of identifying ourselves through the years, actually an incredible gift. It's landmarks along the way that tell us who we are and where we're going. And in the year ahead for South Bend City Church, we're, we're going to dip a little more deeply into this pattern on the calendar. So this is like your primer, primer, prim, this is your introduction, and uh, thank you. And, uh, and you'll see this coming up later in our life. So let me just kind of walk you through this for a little bit and see if you can catch the rhythm of it. Uh, the, the Christian year, it, it begins uh, in the Advent season, which is the four Sundays prior to Christmas. So you were confused. You thought that was shopping season, but it's Advent season. It's a time where we turn to the scriptures and we remember the, the longing, the aching. We name that it's normal to wish for a world that's different than the one that we have right now. We say that it's normal to wish that God felt closer than God feels right now, that those experiences don't mean that you've done something wrong or that you've screwed all of this up or that God's withholding from you. We say, no, this is deeply ingrained in the tradition to long for a more beautiful, more just world and to long for a God who feels more present with us. That's normal. And for Advent, we remember Israel's longing for the fulfillment of God's promises to them, and we name the longings that we have today for a world that's made right. And then we come to Christmas. And we remember that God loves this world and loves us so much that he would wrap himself up in flesh and blood, incarnate right here in our midst. And curiously, Christmas is not a day on the Christian calendar. It's several days in the Christian calendar where we press into that experience. Then there's Epiphany, which is one of my favorite moments in the, in the Christian calendar, and it points to stories in the Gospels. Epiphany, like your eyes are opened, it's revealed to you, you discover the truth about something, and this refers to the discovery of Jesus as God in the flesh. And we turn to stories like the Magi, the wise men, you know, we three kings, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. We've talked about it before, but just a little hit on that. Remember, the Magi, the wise men, these are non-Jew, not God's people. They don't do God's practices or worship in God's religion. In fact, they're over there doing astrology someplace outside of the Holy Land, which is completely prohibited by God in the scriptures. And through the astrology that you're not allowed to do, God leads them to find Jesus when a bunch of religious people all around them miss it. I like that story a lot. That's epiphany. It's about eyes being opened and about every kind of person being invited to discover God in Christ. Uh, a little later in the year, you, you might have heard or seen Ash Wednesday. You've had that day when you went to work and embarrassingly a couple of your neighbors forgot to look in the mirror before they got to work and they have smudges on their forehead, right? Which is, of course, actually this, um, this uh, deeply meaningful ritual of taking ash on the forehead and remembering our mortality. Now, this is, um, in its worst expressions, it's about beating yourself up. It's about um, bearing down on you and being really negative and that, that's sort of the worst energy that might come out sideways if, if Ash Wednesday and Lent are done poorly. Uh, at their best, um, they're a sacred invitation to confront your mortality, which, by the way, is true. So why not just like, get in touch with it for a little bit, right? And all of this Ash Wednesday and then the next several weeks lead up uh, through Lent to Holy Week, where we remember together um, Jesus entering to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday where they welcome him like a king, but they're confused about the nature of his kingdom, uh, to Maundy Thursday uh, where he gives them the new command to love one another, where he washes their feet, where he uh, takes them to the table and 
teaches them about Eucharist, about communion, uh, to Good Friday, where we remember the God who suffers, which uh, just like let that work on you for a minute. We remember the God who suffers with us. And then Easter, of course, where we remember resurrection and the promise of new life that's always waiting for us on the other side of every death. Uh, these are the movements of the Christian calendar. And can you just kind of sense how they create landmarks that are different than the economic ones that tell you you're here for what you can produce? They're different than the consumeristic landmarks that tell you that you're here for what you can consume or buy. They're different from the entertainment landmarks that tell you you're just here to receive whatever's on the TV or the computer. Do you see how they speak to us about who we are and what our lives mean and where we're going? Uh, so we're going to do uh, a little more of this in the year ahead. Um, the word epiphany is up there, which describes sort of a moment, like an eye-opening experience, right? You just have like an aha moment, the light bulb comes on, an epiphany. And epiphanies are good. Epiphanies are good uh, when you're trying to discern the truth about something. Epiphanies are good where you don't know where you are or where you're going, and then all of a sudden you see Chase Tower in the river, and you figure out exactly where you are and where you're going. Epiphanies are good, and we reach for them a lot. Epiphanies of where we are, epiphanies of meaning. But the problem with epiphanies is, one, they're just a little too easy, and two, they don't come often enough. Have you ever, like, been aching for epiphany about what your life means, about where you're going? You feel a little disoriented, and you wish that the map would just become really clear right away? Well, it's, it's been in the wisdom of the followers of Jesus for our entire history that um, epiphanies are few and far between, between, but practices are always available to us. And uh, we have these moments of epiphany, but we every day are invited into practices like putting landmarks on the calendar. And I suspect some of us would discover that we are little by little more oriented to the truth of who we are, to, to the noble calling on our lives, to the gifts of grace and peace that God is giving us and the gifts that God is calling us to give to the world. We'd be more oriented if between epiphanies we would learn the practices that orient us, like put some things on the calendar, celebratory things of the good that God has done, um, meaningful things that have just spoken to you about your identity, weekly patterns, even daily patterns, which we're going to talk, to, talk about in a couple of weeks, daily patterns of rooting yourself in a truer story so you know where you are and where you're going. A year ago, I was super disoriented because of one particular experience I was having in life. And it was quite literally like I was saying inside, I don't know where I am right now. And the experience uh, was, was uh, being with friends who are members of our community that we've talked about before, uh, who, uh, who, whose beautiful baby boy was born last year, July, and who was quickly whisked away uh, to Riley Hospital in Indianapolis where he spent from July to the end of November. And uh, during that time, things were really hard. So they stayed down there the whole time. I would go down about once a week to be with them. And um, their beautiful baby boy, Theo, just had this host of complications and not even the best doctors could understand which were causes and which were effects and how it was all connected. And um, many days felt like a fight for his life. But there was one day in particular that um, things got very intense. And they had tried a bunch of di different interventions and they had one major intervention left that they could try to do. And they call it ECMO, E-C-M-O, which is an abbreviation for some long medical words I could never say, ECMO. And basically what they do then is they, they tap like all your major veins and arteries and your entire circulatory system comes out of your body and goes into a machine where the things that your heart and your lungs would ordinarily do happen in a machine instead. So they do ECMO for uh, several days. 
And then there's a day when the doctors come and they say, there's nothing we can do anymore. ECMO was like the best weapon we have against everything that seems to be plaguing your poor baby boy. And he can't be on ECMO forever. And can't, in fact, he, he can't be on ECMO anymore. And we have to take him off of it and we have nothing left. And so here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna bring in the palliative care doctors and they're gonna make sure he's really comfortable and we're gonna take him off the machine, we're gonna put him in your arms and you'll have maybe a few minutes with him um, before he dies and you have to say goodbye. I remember that's a moment where I'm just like, I don't know where I am, right? Like in time, in the world, I don't know what story I'm a part of because things just get really dark, you know? And other days I would wanna say I'm a part of a story of grace and peace in the world, of good things in the world, but that's a moment where I just don't know where I am or, or where I'm headed. And I know that um, Theo's parents feel the same times a thousand, right? Well, they take Theo off the ECMO machine and there's all these monitors next to him that measure all of his vitals. And we expected that we would see all of those vital numbers just decline in the minutes after they took him off the machine. But in fact, what happened, to everyone's shock really, um, they take him off the machine and his numbers just slowly start ticking up. Little by little, minutes, hours, and days. And that was um, in the middle of his stay at, at Riley. Uh, November, he gets to come home. And little by little, he continues to inch his way toward health. And yesterday was August 19th. And August 19th of 2016 was the day they took him off the ECMO and prepared to say goodbye. So yesterday, Rick and Chelsea uh, with baby Theo, they invite some friends over and we're there. And we just throw this great celebration and there's tons of food and uh, they call it Theo's rebirth day. And uh, we kind of use the moment um, to put a landmark in time and, and remember where we were and, and where we've come. And it's an orienting effect on us. Now look, I know not every story ends like that. I know that not every um, baby that goes to Riley comes out of Riley, tragically. Um, but the fact is, we have moments in our history, not unlike Israel, where we sense that some good thing is broken in, some promise has been fulfilled, some faithfulness has manifested itself. Somehow we've come in touch with the love of God. And, and just like Rick and Chelsea and Theo, like, it's completely up to us that we have this opportunity to build some landmarks in time. So I'm saying we need to be better about putting parties on the calendar. I'm saying we need to be better about choosing moments when we will reflect on where we really are and where we are really going. I'm saying we need to decide that we won't simply accept the landmarks in time that are imposed upon us by economics or consumerism or entertainment. We should choose some of the landmarks that align with what we believe about where we actually are in a world loved by God, graced by God, gifted by God, in a world that is moving sometimes in lurches or awkward steps, but a world that's moving more and more toward the justice of God. We need landmarks on the calendar that speak grace and peace to us about where we are and landmarks on the calendar that speak about the generosity and justice of the world that we are building together. And all that remains is for us to decide to do it. So we'll do some of it as a community. We'll do some of it whether it's through Advent and Epiphany and Lent and, and Easter. And we'll do some of it through the parties that we throw for one another when the good things happen. We'll eat meals together. We'll name where we are and where we're going and we'll create landmarks. And uh, what I hope will happen is that more and more often, these words that we use like grace and peace will not be abstractions, but they'll be grounded in, in space and time. 
in, in earth and dirt and meals and memories and our presence in the current moment and our, our well-founded hopes for where we are going. So if you're able, will you stand to your feet? And as I offer our usual benediction today, I hope that we might uh, be thinking quite actively about the parties that we will throw and the landmarks that we will build. So friends, let me say today, grace and peace be with you. Love you guys. See you soon.